Hello and welcome to Peach Pie, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And for the moment, I'm alone in the studio, but I am here today to share with you an interview that I did with Teresa Tomlinson. She is the former mayor of Columbus, and she recently announced an exploratory committee to run for the U.S. Senate in 2020. She would be challenging David Perdue for that Senate seat. He is running for re-election. We dove into a lot of issues. Uh, We talked about the heartbeat abortion bill um, and her views on reproductive choice issues. We talked talked about the delay in disaster aid for victims of Hurricane Michael and a whole array of big decisions that would be on her plate if she was to be the next U.S. Senator from Georgia. We got into a lot of stuff, so I'm not going to say more than that for now, uh, but I am just going to go ahead and turn it over to Mayor Tomlinson in our discussion. All right, and we are now joined by Teresa Tomlinson, the former mayor of Columbus, who recently formed an exploratory committee to consider a challenge to Georgia Senator David Perdue. Mayor Tomlinson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate you having me on. So for anybody who may not be familiar with you, can you start by just telling us a little bit about your background and your time as mayor of Columbus? Sure. Well, I grew up in Atlanta. I actually lived there um, the first half of my life and then came to Columbus, Georgia for the second half so far. And I had the great privilege of being elected uh, mayor in, in 2010, started in 2011. But before that, I had actually uh, been a trial lawyer, practiced almost exclusively in the federal courts uh, with things such as uh, truth and lending cases, uh, real estate practice settlement cases. Those are uh, big federal consumer acts. And so I basically had a trial practice of consumer protection, uh, did some aviation uh, law, was one of the lead lawyers on the value jet crash in in the Florida Everglades. So I had the opportunity to handle some large national scope cases in my career and specialized in what we call complex litigation. I tell you that because if you deal in complex litigation, you're basically charged with trying to untangle um, a big ball of tangled yarn. Uh, it's um, basically taking complicated cases where justice is is uh, eluding usually consumers and people that are disenfranchised and trying to get them justice in a very quick way. And that builds certain problem-solving skills um, outside the box thinking. And that's actually what led me to run for public office was because I was in Columbus uh, practicing law, very engaged in the civic and, and elected leadership system in the form of, you know, writing checks to great candidates, trying to urge good citizens to run. Uh, and um, our mayor was going to retire, not run for a second term. I was trying to encourage others to run and just thought, hey, I'm going to cut out the middleman and show folks how it's done. And so ran and, and began applying very strong progressive principles Uh, actually implementing them and showing how they work, had broad support uh, from those that would consider themselves liberals to those that consider themselves conservatives, because the amazing thing, Kyle, is that people love good government and actually love progressive policies uh, when they're implemented in a pragmatic way that does not shock the system of their life. And uh, that's we had a really great run. Eight years in Columbus, we reduced crime by 42 percent, dramatically reduced the unemployment rate by about six percent. We were able to completely reform our budget, saving tens of millions of dollars. As a result, um, we actually provide government in the city of Columbus at the lowest cost per person of any major city in the state of Georgia. And so we were chosen as one of the 25 best run cities in the United States of America. So I'm very proud of that and the team we had that helped get it done. And we just saw a big renaissance in uh, in Columbus. So that's sort of my background. And for the past year or so, I've been looking at uh, running for statewide office, particularly U.S. Senate against uh the incumbent, David Perdue, who currently holds the seat in 20, that election would be in 2020. So of those accomplishments you've described during your tenure as mayor, what are you most proud of? And how do those accomplishments as mayor inform the kind of senator you'd be? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. The things I'm most proud of are the things that are big snoozers because they are reforming the entire structure um, to allow for good government going forward. So it's not a bridge 
which you cut a ribbon on or something like that. Those are fun things. Those are great celebratory things. Like we expanded our biking, walking trails to 66 miles so that citizens actually have a completely alternative transportation grid to having a car in Columbus. That's huge. And that's usually something that a typical mayor would tell you is at the top of their list or reducing the animal euthanasia rate from 80% to no kill. Uh, That's something that most mayors would tell you about because people can easily get their hands around how that affects their lives. But what really affects their life, frankly, more is a complete restructure of the city budget uh, to get it in line so the city can have great uh, financial stability. So we reformed the pension for our employees, but maintained the incredibly valuable defined benefit plan. Um, So our, our employees got this very rich, very valuable pension plan. We didn't basically balance it on their backs of, of, of uh, depriving them of a wonderful benefit. And we saved um, $55 million basically doing that. So those are the kinds of things that make you yawn, uh, but they saved the city basically um, of financial distress in the future, saved our employees. We went from, uh, I think it was approximately 74% funding rate of the pension to when I left over 96%. So those are the kinds of things you read about in the paper, the New York Times and New Jersey and others, you know, cities where they meet some, you know, calamitous brick wall because nobody had the political courage to tackle these kinds of foundational things. And so I saw my role as mayor as, um, you know, basically touching every third rail there was, if that's what it took. Uh, to get the underlying system and foundation right so people could have good government. I I would say the other thing that I'm very, very proud of is that Columbus was transitioning to a minority-majority community, and I actually ran on that. Now, that sounds bizarre to people who are very engaged in politics. How do you run on race? But my point was that Columbus had a very outdated political structure, and it was not one that could absorb the social change that we were headed for. It was not one that celebrated the social change we were headed for. And so I uh, ran not on political surrogacy, which is the way a a, a smaller community would typically uh, run, which is um, the mayor calls in the bank president, the African-American community leader, um, the chamber of commerce president, and then, you know, a few others. And then they decide what they're going to do. And then they tell them to, to go out to their various constituencies and tote the load of bringing everybody on board. Well, that doesn't work in an age of social media. And that does not work uh, in an age where people are getting their information from various sources and not just from their employer or not just from their pastor, or not just from their neighborhood association president. And so um, I ran on allowing citizens to have direct, meaningful and direct access to their mayor, to the city government, so they felt empowered. And I actually got a lot of pushback from that by what some people would probably call a good old boy system, if you will, but a, an outdated structure, because the uh, folks that were had been in power were very nervous about allowing all 200,000 citizens to have access to their government, to feel empowered in that way. And and as long as you have a very steady hand, hand and a very transparent leader, it actually creates great stability. So I'm very, very proud of that. And I'd have to say this wonderful new mayor we have in Columbus, Skip Henderson, is actually continuing a lot of those policies, not because we're an ideological lockstep. We actually Um, have different uh, political views, but because that's good government, and I'm not speaking for him, but I would would imagine he's continuing it because he feels it's healthy for the community. And so I'm very, very proud of that. In your announcement of the Exploratory Committee, you said that you were laying the groundwork to run for Senate if Stacey Abrams did not run. But have you made a final decision that you will not run for Senate if Abrams jumps in, or would you consider joining the primary even if she's in it? Well, you know, I I never say never. I'll tell you my reason for that position, Kyle, at this, you know, up until this point is because Stacey and I have been in the trenches of of democratic politics in Georgia for a very long time. I've, I've been a Democrat for 30 years and, and, and Stacey's been in elected office, I think for 
12 years, and, and I'm sure was very involved before that. So, you know, we have been tilling this field for a long time, uh, looking forward to Democrats coming back in uh, at least a two-party system, for God's sake, but certainly Democrats coming back into power so we could have the better governing um, principles that Democrats stand for. And I see it as unproductive to have two formidable women leaders capable of holding statewide office running in the same primary. Um, now, that being said, I do believe in robust primary battles. I ran the first time in a, in a very competitive field of four accomplished individuals. I had the privilege of, of winning 68% of the vote, but it was very hard fought. We had 44 debates. So I don't shy away from a fight. I don't shy away from, from voicing uh, differing opinions and letting people um, determine what's the better leadership. But why I'm, I'm cautious about where we are is because we are at a place where we can actually take this. We can beat David Perdue. And I think that we need to be um, unified to a reasonable point, certainly. We don't need to unnecessarily shoot ourselves in the foot. And so that's why I'm very cautious about declaring that uh, two individuals, such as Stacey and myself, should should head off into a, a contested primary. So, so, so that's the reason for that. I, I think that our resources... And our goodwill could be better used rowing in the same direction. And that's what the two of us have been doing up to this point. Let's turn to some things going on in Washington. Um, so Congress recently recessed without coming to a deal to provide federal aid to survivors of Hurricane Michael in southwest Georgia and Flor in the Florida Panhandle, along with survivors of other disasters in the Midwest and in California. How has the delay impacted survivors of that hurricane in southwest Georgia? And what kind of aid do people down there need? Well, it's been devastating, Kyle. I mean, you know, and of course, Columbus, we were so fortunate to miss it by just the serendipity of, of mother nature. Right. And so it could have come through and, and devastated Columbus, but it hit our, our brothers and sisters just South of us, Daughtery County, Albany, um, just a swath across Georgia, as I'm sure you've seen on some of the weather maps and, and federal relief maps. And so it's been devastating to our, our cotton farmers, our, our pecan crops and, and many, many, many others. Uh, so we these are the times that we rely on the federal government. This is a, a great demonstration of how the federal government is a partner in our prosperity. And, and sometimes we like to take that for granted and throw rocks at the federal government and say we want them out of our lives. Uh, well, that is a very bold thing to say until, of course, you need them in your lives to provide uh, civic stability, to provide that access to prosperity, as I was saying. So, you know, there are things when you drive through uh, central and south Georgia, you see the devastation of Hurricane Michael as if it happened, you know, a month ago. It's still there. And so these farmers are having difficulty uh, planting their fields, getting on with, with what is going to, what is absolutely necessary for them to carry, in many instances, a family tradition forward. And all of this uh, really because in Washington, D.C., particularly in the U.S. Senate, they're literally addicted to the fight. Uh, they are under the impression that this is the WWF, not the USA, uh, which, of course, is the World Wrestling Federation. And so they, they just love to get in these fights about Puerto Ricans being second class citizens, uh, Puerto Ricans not being true U.S. citizens entitled um, to the same level of relief. And our Georgia farmers are now somehow caught up in this because until they win the fight, that uh, U.S. citizens and U.S. territories aren't entitled to the same amount of relief, um, our farmers are, are held in limbo. And let me just point out a couple of things to show you the shocking disparity and, and the reason why, uh, you know, this, this battle has been teed up. But for instance, you know, Texas, of course, had uh, Hurricane Harvey, and we had Irma in Florida, and we had Maria in Puerto Rico. And so Texas, within the first nine days, received $141 million in aid. Florida, within the first nine days, $100 million in aid. And Puerto Rico, in the first nine days, $6 million in aid. And so the disparity is, is real. 
um, you know, in, within 14 days, both Florida and Texas had a billion dollars and Puerto Rico, it took them 120 days to get a billion dollars in aid. So what's the objective here? Are we trying to allow our U.S. territory with U.S. citizens to devolve uh, into a, a pit of civic instability? Is, is that what we want? Do we want to create some sort of national security crisis by having um, a U.S. territory devolve to that kind of state that uh, just the typical services that you depend on um, to have an, an, a going concern of a government and, and a community are not there? It's, it's foolish it is um, it, it's just indicative of the dysfunction and it's resulting in in really a loss of capacity of Georgians to carry on with our number one industry, agriculture. So so the federal government is not working for us. And if we keep sending the same people uh, to Washington, it simply never will. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm very passionate about providing that new leadership uh, and, and new priorities to our United States Senate. So what would you do if you were in Senator Perdue's position now? Senator Perdue has said that he influences the president. But yeah. like you've said to date, the sticking point has been President Trump's refusal to allow more disaster aid beyond a patch to Puerto Rico's food stamp funding to allow any more yeah. aid than that to go to the island. Would If you were in the Senate today, would you consider procedural tactics like a Senate hold or the filibuster that would delay the business of the Senate to put pressure on leadership to pass an aid bill? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Kyle. You're absolutely right. You used, uh, you used uh, David Perdue's own words there so that we don't have to cast it. He is indeed an influencer of this president. He has described himself as the co-pilot of this president. Uh, perhaps slightly differently, I would say he is the great enabler of this president. And if he has influence, then he needs to be using it for the people of Georgia. And apparently he's not doing that or he's very ineffective at his job. And so a couple of things when, you know, if I were in his place, yes, I would be doing things differently. And if I was in his place, of course, I, we would be closer to having a majority um, of those who are much more reasonable at effectuating policy that benefits the citizens and stops using federal aid as weapons. Um, but, yeah, you know, you need to look at all of those various you know, Senate rules and Senate tactics, if you will. But I will tell you, we saw with the, the shutdown, of course, that when you play a game of chicken with the people's business, you you run the risk of, of harming not only our economy, but our citizens because of this political ego and political sport. So my objective, and it, this is one that I get, and it sounds you know, I talked earlier about my legal career and, and the, the impossible things we did when I had the opportunity to be mayor. But it's because you bring an ethos to the environment you're working in uh, of simply laser focused solutions. It sounds silly, but when you begin to change the ethic of an institution, as they're doing in Congress, as frankly, we're beginning to see at our state legislature uh, some of the pushback that happened early on in the session was stuff that has not happened since 2002. And it's because you're beginning to see a transformation of the ethic. And so what the Senate is in desperate need of is outside the box thinking, rewriting the playbook, not necessarily going to the old ways of doing things, but shaking it up. But the very first thing we need is somebody who is not enabling a leader who is frankly the cause of this. That, that That is the major sticking point that's bringing detriment to us. And it's frankly happening also with the tariffs. Uh, you know, we've now declared tariff war on our own farmers. Uh, well, we don't have to declare a tariff war on our farmers to solve global trade challenges. It's completely unnecessary. Uh, we see it with with healthcare. Um, you know, the, the ego war of wanting to undo things that President Obama did. Uh, we're just going to hurt American families. Uh, for political ego. And our current representative is a political enabler of that. And so I think that if there is one thing the people of the United States of America and the people of Georgia can do to break up this dysfunction, it is to replace the primary enabler of the president who is caught in this morass of WWF political sport. 
I want to get a little bit into what you'd like to do if you became a senator. But first, I want to talk about a little bit of process. Democratic presidential candidates have been pressed on whether or not they would ask for changes to the filibuster from a Democrat-led Senate. Do you think that there should be reforms to the filibuster? And if so, what form reforms would you like to see put in place? You know, it, it is so in a way it's kind of sad, but, you know, a lot of times when you're just used to the way that process and structure is and it has this sort of old school charm to it, that that's just not a reason to hold on to it. So I have to say, I'm, you know, there have been, as you know, some really historic times in which the filibuster was used to stop bad policy. And and it, it is sort of an accident. Uh, it was a rule in the late uh, 19th century uh, that basically had this effect. So there's nothing constitutional about it. There's, you know, it can be changed at any time. And I'm afraid that because of our dysfunction and the evolution of our, our political selves, it, it is time for it to go. And, and it's it pains me to say that because there was um, a, a wonderful political camaraderie about having to have uh, 60 votes for cloture on on various you know, major controversial things or, or major policy shifts for United States Supreme Court uh, justices. There should be that kind of unanimity. But now what has happened is we're unable to move forward with the people's business. And so, I, you know, Kyle, if you had asked me two years ago, I would have said, no, 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 we, we can't change filibuster. But I have to say, that that this dysfunction and this deadlock has put everything on the table. And and yes, it makes me nervous, as it does most Democrats, to think that there would be, uh, God forbid, a you know Republican majority continuing and what they would do uh, with this loss. But frankly, they're they're doing away with it as we speak anyway, as it serves their needs. They found a way um, to do it under. President Obama, Mitch McConnell, has has found ways to use the Senate rules as a weapon. And I think it's time to completely rethink the rules of the Senate and the customs of the Senate of how we can restructure it to be better. So if it's not the filibuster, maybe there's something else that we can think of that we can all agree on that would bring the type of stability and political camaraderie on the things that are important to us. But I'm afraid the days of the filibuster are done. It's just not serving its its purpose anymore. It's It's become a a weapon, and it's been largely dismissed already. So, you know, like I said, it pains me to say it, but I think it, we do have to uh, move on from it and, and think of, is there another tool we can come up with? Yeah, I think these rules are going to kind of provide the foundation from which the Senate considers major policy changes going forward, particularly as it relates to health care. Um, you know that Democrats nationally are currently debating what a health care agenda should be for the next Democratic president. And the debate seems to really fall along this line of whether or not folks believe that there should be a role for private health insurance coverage going forward. Um, so if you're elected to the Senate, would you like to see the chamber pursue legislation that prohibits private companies from selling health insurance? Or would you prefer reforms to the existing system, which would keep most people getting their insurance through either their employer or the marketplace or Medicare and Medicaid? Yeah, you know, no, I want to be clear on this. There's there's no need to dissolve completely a role for private insurers. And, and you know, we use it now, for instance, in, in Medicare. There's a role for private insurers with the various parts, Part C, Part D, you know, of, of Medicare. They're actually, uh, those are, are private market participants that are, um, that are helping us out and bolster our Medicare plan. And, and it also helps people out, you know, to me, Kyle, when we're looking at this system of healthcare in our nation, and it's, it, the problem is it's not a free market. There's so many anomalies to it. There's barriers to entry, there's profiteering, there's not complete uh, knowledge and, and free-flowing information, there's not uh, equal bargaining power, all the things that make up a healthy free market. So the Republicans can just quit it already with uh, trying to convince us that the healthcare industry is somehow this wonderful free market. It's simply not. It has anomalies all over it. So, you know, what can we do? This is this is a prime example of how government functions best to create a framework in which the private sector can more effectively 
function. So what do I mean by that? We started out with the ACA. And, and anytime you have that kind of uh, complete overhaul, uh, you know, monumental shift in um, the, the market paradigm, it necessarily there are going to be some things you miss, some things you've got to go back and you've got to correct once they're being implemented. So I think everybody's on agree- in agreement that, that we have to go back and make some changes to the ACA. But I think generally speaking, it is a good policy structure, a great base upon which to work, but we can make it even better. And, and here's how. So people are talking about Medicare for all. And, um, and and I think that Medicare absolutely and having some base healthcare system, uh, we talk about Medicaid for those with, with need, um, having some base healthcare system is absolutely essential to the financial infrastructure of the citizens of the United States of America. And we talk about, um, you know, physical infrastructure, roads and bridges and sewer systems and water systems and all of these things that our, our Republican counterparts love and celebrate. Well, the, there's no difference in a financial infrastructure that provides stability to the market. That helps actually the private sector and citizens. So if we begin to have a way to expand Medicare um, one of the things that I talk a lot about is expanding Medicaid immediately, uh, excuse me, Medicare immediately to 55. If you do that, it is something that you can largely do under the current system. It's something that would largely pay for itself because citizens are already paying for very high uh, premiums, of course, and they're already paying for those who are not covered. Uh, And so once you begin to expand to 55, you can see how the market adjusts to that and what your next steps need to be. It helps us um, take a more incremental approach to something that will be a monumental shift in a major market of this country and one that is essential to the prosperity of our citizens. So, you know, that is the way I'm a proud progressive. You're not going to hear from me uh, blue dog, you know, type. Uh, proposals. You're not going to hear from me sort of more moderate or watered down democratic approach. I, I am a proud progressive, but I am pragmatic in the way those progressive policies are implemented. And that's where I think you begin to find the consensus. So when you're talking about things like Medicare for all, it shocks a lot of people because they can't fathom how we get our hands around that. Fine. Let's start instead of debating it for 10 years, let's start moving toward it. And uh, and one of the ways we can do that is by finding more effective ways to expand Medicaid. I think now, as you see in the state of Georgia, um, our Republican friends waking up to the notion that that would have been a really great thing to do and that they should have done. I think in essence, they've admitted that they were wrong about that um, to the detriment of some 400 to 600,000 Georgians, uh, which is, is I think a devastating thing to have to admit. Um, And so we need to start uh, implementing uh, some of these uh, broadened structures related to our healthcare system immediately. And and that's how I would suggest we do it when I get to the U.S. Senate, should uh, we move from the exploratory phase into um, the actual campaign phase. Moving on um, to reproductive health, what what is your view of the six-week abortion ban that is likely to be signed by Governor Kemp? And do you think there should be federal legislation to override that law and protect abortion access? Yeah. Um, to answer your first question, I think it's a travesty. I think I think um, HB 481 is absolutely shocking in what it reveals about the uh, so-called uh, pro-life and, and rightward march to infringe upon the rights of women. I have been pro-choice and staunchly pro-choice, frankly, since I was old enough to even know what the issue was about, uh, because from a theological, a biological, and a governmental standpoint, it is again, shocking to me that anyone thinks that a secular legislative body uh, should be invading uh, the flesh of women and invading their most private and intimate discussions with their doctors, uh, their families, and, uh, you know, their faith support, whether that be their minister or or whatever faith that that they practice. And, And so I think what has been exposed by HB 481 
Kyle, is really remarkable. Finally, women, and I think all all people of good conscience, are seeing what's really at work here. You know, um, and then I want to get back to your federal legislation question, but I think this is so shocking. I want to point this out. When the when the state legislative session began, um, there was actually a bipartisan effort to ratify, to have Georgia be the, the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, you may remember. And all of a sudden, uh, everybody was shocked and thought, wow, that's just the happy news, happy, happy news. And then all of a sudden, the Republicans started pulling away from it because they were getting calls uh, from the non-choice sector, you know, their constituents and, and sort of the national groups. And when asked, the Republicans uh, who were pulling away said, well, it's come to my attention that should the Equal Rights Amendment pass and a woman become pregnant, we won't be able to subjugate her rights. We'll have to treat her equally to the life we believe, you know, she's carrying and, and we believe it's a person and all of this business. And, and you got to stop for a second and think about what they're saying there is that when a woman becomes pregnant, her individual rights are subjugated to that of the state, that she becomes a vessel for the state simply because she's pregnant, that they're taking a, quote, compelling interest in her womb because she's pregnant. That is, again, shocking. And finally, a manifestation, a a demonstration of what they've been up to all this time. And so we can't let that moment pass of showing what this is really about, is that they intend for women not to have full rights, not to have rights over the the sanctity of of their own body. And so I want to just just stress how strongly I feel about this. I think it is an amazing overreach of government power. I think it's a weapon against women. I think it is biologically bizarre um, to think that uh, state legislators are somehow going to pass laws that take into consideration ectopic pregnancies, uh, women who are carrying multiple fetuses where one may be, um, you know, impaired in some way that it cannot be viable. Um, On and on and on and on, if you know anything about the reproductive health of women, which clearly most of these men that are pushing this do not, um, there is no way to legislate the the nuances and the multifaceted considerations of an individual woman's reproductive health. And then from a theological standpoint, again, it is so troubling that, um, that, that they have put their judgment ahead of the divine creation of how women were made, uh, which is that they carry life within the walls of their flesh that live off their lifeblood. And in what circumstance, in what religious text has it ever been suggested that that would be delegated to a secular legislative body? So I hope I've made it clear how strongly I feel about this subject. So when you ask me if I feel that federal legislation is appropriate, you bet. Uh, Because if we cannot trust states to treat women as equal citizens at this point, to relegate them to being vessels of the state simply because they're pregnant, then they are violating the constitutional norms that declare, quote unquote, every man, and that means every woman, is equal. And uh, and so we have to uh, we have to codify the principles of Roe versus Wade um, and, and perhaps go further. Frankly, I, I personally believe um that we should, no government should regulate women's reproductive health any more so than we regulate heart surgery. And, uh, and and we need to get out of the business because it's not a legislative business. We need to leave it to the doctors, to the women, uh, and to those women choose to share their decisions with. So, Would you like to see the Hyde Amendment, which blocks federal Medicaid funding for abortion services, would you like to see that amendment repealed? Yes, I'd like to lead that charge. Because again, that is nothing but a weapon on on those women in our communities that are most in need. It is denying them full uh, reproductive health care. And and again, you know, these folks that talk about this so recklessly, they have no idea um, the decisions that women are struggling with every single day. And to say that because of your economic status, because you may have to rely on Medicaid, because you may have to rely on Planned Parenthood and can't fly yourself to New York City or or some other place that's more tolerant of women, then, uh, you know, you don't have options. You don't have choices to consider what's best for your own 
health and 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 the health of 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 any life you have uh, been blessed to carry. And I mean, there's just devastating examples of of women who have found out they're carrying twins and one's non-viable, and they're given the choice that to continue to carry the non-viable uh, uh, embryo would actually threaten the other and could threaten their life through sepsis and other other results. So, so what, we're going to legislate that so uh, and, and deny that, that individual um, the type of care she may need uh, at Planned Parenthood or wherever it may be because she's not wealthy enough to, to seek private care elsewhere. I think it's reprehensible. So let's turn to climate change. Um, so projections for the impact of climate change on the U.S. have become even more dire in the last couple of years, with a recent report estimating that the effects of climate change could cost $54 trillion. That's $54 trillion with a T in damage in the long run. In your view, what should the federal government do about climate change? Well, I think the first thing we all need to do as a people is apologize to Al Gore and Jimmy Carter, uh, because had we listened uh, to Al Gore back in the 90s, had we listened to Jimmy Carter back in the 70s, whatever climate change we would be dealing with now could be handled in a much more modest and incremental form, uh, and we would not be dealing with these costs. But you hit it spot on. We are paying for this right now, and so no one should put up the argument that to try to mitigate the impact could be costly uh, because we're already paying for it. Um, yes, I believe we need to consider the impact of any legislation that, that we may consider and pass to address this. But the fact of the matter now, as you point out, is that this is an urgent, critical matter. And it's not just if you somehow can't get your arms around um, the state and health of the earth being important to you, which some people, you know, apparently that just doesn't resonate somehow. This is costing you, quote unquote, uh, any person out there. It is costing you so much because like in Columbus, for instance, we've had multiple hundred year floods in 10 years. It is a regular course of our business now to have to close down streets, to bring out sawhorses, to, uh, to detour traffic for, you know, a day. Um, simply because we had a hundred year flood. Um, we're losing buildings. We're having to shut down water systems because pumps are um, flooded. We're having to uh, dig up roads and put in much larger pipes than anyone ever thought, which is hundreds of millions of dollars for a city such as Columbus to, to go through and replace all of the stormwater pipes. That's just one thing, Kyle. Look at the farmers. They're telling you now they believe in climate change. Um, it is affecting their industry. Uh, look at Savannah. We now have Buddy Carter that's finally, he's just decided, that, hey, you know what? Climate change is real. Well, that we would have appreciated that realization a couple decades ago, and we could have been cooperating on policies that helped us uh, curb these costs and curb the devastation. We were just talking about Hurricane Irma and Harvey and, and Maria a few minutes ago. And, and the fact of the matter is, you heard meteorologists, not politicians, tell us that those hurricanes were absolutely stronger because the waters they were passing through were warmer because of climate change. And you still have, you know, folks irresponsibly saying, well, you know, OK, well, I agree in climate change. I just don't think it's important to talk about uh, what's causing climate change. I just think we talk about how we deal with it. So basically what they're telling you is I just think we talk about the trillions of dollars we're going to spend uh, in, in aid for uh, future disasters, uh, having to dig up our streets for pipes, um, having to relocate people from cities like Miami, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and Charleston and Savannah and move whole cities. You cannot imagine the trillions and trillions of dollars that's going to cost us or or we could find a way we could find a way that's not you know equally devastating to our existing life and our existing economy uh to begin to deal with this meaningfully and every year every day that this goes without a solution that this goes being ignored by the people who are presently in office is is a further day that people will be harmed 
when we could have helped them. Yeah, I don't want to see beachfront property in Macon. Um, but what? <laughs> well, you know, but it doesn't matter. You know what there is in Macon? Storm, stormwater sewer systems. Yeah. There, there, there's low-lying land in Macon. There are floodplains in Macon. There are places that weren't in floodplains previously that now are. And that's the same thing in Columbus. So, no, you don't have to be on a coastal city for this to about to be at a point where it's about to cost your city, wherever you are in the United States, millions of dollars. Fires, forest fires, you know, uh, localized flooding on a regular basis, having to relocate people that weren't in floodplains before, but now dang sure are. Um, so so people don't need to delude themselves that they're that they're immune um, from this, it's, it's going to have a devastating effect on our agricultural communities. Um, if you're interested in the immigration issue at our borders, you just wait, you just wait until people can't get water till they can't grow things till they're having to migrate like, like human beings have done in, in, in the past when their culture and climate changes. And so now our climate is changing and what are we going to do about it? This is one where we could do something and we need to get busy. So what do you make of um, the arguments put out by the proponents of the Green New Deal basically uh, come to the need for a World War II style mobilization, a mobilization of the entire American economy, the entire American government, um, and that that mobilization should also include to it components that compensate for the damage done by fossil fuel industries. And that's why when you look at the Green New Deal resolution that's been introduced in Washington, it includes not only policies that deal specifically with climate, but um, it deals with healthcare policies, it deals with policies that would uh, provide some sort of compensation to communities that have been damaged. Do you think that the effort needs to be on that scale? Or do you have in mind more things like more green energy incentives, tax incentives, creating a market for that? How do you think about the type of mobilization that's needed to deal with this problem? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not afraid of ideas. So I think people need to throw whatever idea they have on the table. And the fact that we think an idea is extreme or would shock the system of our economy or our culture, uh, well, is there a way that we could get the same effect with maybe tweaking that a little bit? I don't know, but you don't, you, you're not going to find out unless somebody throws the idea on the table in the first instance. So this is no time to be afraid of ideas. Uh, so the fact that somebody has thrown a general outline, which the uh, Green New Deal is, of some bold, uh, effective policies on the table, that's fine. Uh, let's talk about it and see what's doable. But you're basically asking, do I believe in the carrot or the stick? I believe in the carrot and the stick. And and I think there's ways, you know, I've seen it in the past and in, in, in my uh, prior uh, law career. You know, the reason why we have airbags today, the reason why... Uh, traffic fatalities are, are the lowest they've been in, in modern times it is because we have airbags. Uh, well, when I first started my career as a lawyer, we were suing manufacturers in the United States because they would not put um, they would not put three point belt systems in their cars and they wouldn't put airbags in their cars. They were actually uh, working in their economic Dis, you know, disinterest. They were working against their own interests. And uh, Volvo and all of these European makers were, were cleaning our clock and getting ready to clean our clock even more. And so in that instance, um, because the federal government wouldn't change, it was actually private attorney generals in the form of lawyers um, who were making that change through the courts, making them pay for the impact of their indecision or their negligent decision, if, if you, if, if you will. So, so do I believe in carrot and stick? Yes. Uh, do I believe again in, in the pragmatism of implementing things that are effective with as little shock as possible? Sure. But I also know to use a golf, you know, uh, phrase, we have to play this ball from where it lies and, and the ball lies largely where it does <laughs> in the sand trap because we have colleagues who have refused to admit the obvious. And, and that is what has narrowed our options. That is, is what has made the, the pragmatic impl implementation of these suggestions more difficult. 
I, I think it's still possible. Uh, it's going to take a lot of creative thinking, uh, it, but it absolutely is going to take um, not being afraid of bold ideas being put on the table. You know, we just can't have this where somebody introduces something like a Green New Deal and people lose their ever loving minds. Uh, I'm not saying we adopt it wholesale, but good God, all that was suggested, we start talking about it. And um, and, and if you're a leader and if you're somebody who are, who's committed uh, to the best policy uh, for the people of, of the government that you're a steward of, then you need to get busy looking at bold ideas and thinking of how you can mitigate any negative impact. So, yeah, I believe in the carrot and the stick. And, and I think um, I, I actually think that uh, responsible uh, corporate participants uh, understand uh, that the, the carrot and stick approach, too. And they'll actually work with you uh, when you put them in a position of needing to work with you um, of, of being part of the solution. Um, so let's close with a quick lightning round of, of a few more policies to cover here. Um, let's start with the minimum wage. Do you think that the federal minimum wage should be increased? And if so, uh, to what level would you like to see it increased? Well, I think it has to be increased. And, and you know, um, I would love to see it increase $2 immediately because I think we've been debating this for so long um, that that we're really very far behind and in a, the income inequality is staggering and it's reaching a point where there's going to be economic and, and some people even write that if you don't start changing it, is there going to be civic instability at some point because you've got such a disparity between have and have nots. So, so yeah, something has to be done and I think you could do $2 immediately and then you've got to do incremental steps because otherwise you will have a, um, uh, you will have a, um, a, a backlash of losing jobs and so forth. Uh, so there's a way to do it. But one thing we need to do once we get it straight, and I think $15 has been mentioned, $12 has been mentioned as what is the livable wage. And that's what we need to have an eye on is getting as quickly as possible to the living wage. And also I would say we, whatever we do in the future, we got to get to the livable wage and then we need to put a cost of living adjustment on our minimum wage. And we need to find a way to do something uh, palatable and sustainable um, in a way that will not inhibit job creation um, to have a, a livable wage that continues uh, with a cost of living adjustment to it. Do you think that the Republicans' 2017 tax reform bill that permanently cut corporate taxes and temporarily cut personal income taxes, do you think that that bill should either be repealed or significantly changed? I think it is wildly irresponsible, and I think it's something that, frankly, is going to end up in the long run hurting those uh, that it sought to help. Um, so I think that, uh, and, and by that I meant the one percent. I mean, the one percent is is really all that were were helped there, and there was some uh, other Im immediate and temporary. Uh, benefit to some few. But uh, I think it needs to be looked at and reformed. Absolutely. If it was horrible policy, horrible tax policy, and something must be done about it. Cory Booker recently introduced the Marijuana Justice Act that legalizes marijuana at the federal level. It's co-sponsored by several senators who may be the next president, including Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Bernie Sanders. Would you support marijuana legalization at the federal level or legislation that would allow states to decide? Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. I'll say this. I'll, I'll tell you what I, I do believe about uh, marijuana legalization. I think we have to remove marijuana from Schedule 1 because it's impeding research. Um, it's impeding uh, things such as it, the use of, of marijuana for medicinal purposes, um, seizures and treating uh, opioids and cancer and end-of-life treatment and things that is immensely valuable and, and much needed. Um, I, I think that we have to um, begin um, amending our laws, both removing it from Schedule 1 and also other federal legislation, so that our farmers can begin growing this medically needed um, crop so that uh, we can find ways uh, to lawfully uh, distribute it and get it in the hands of those that need it. Um, and, and, you know, right now we're having issues with our banking laws because people who are in the business of cultivating marijuana or whether it's medicinal purposes or in some instances like in Colorado for recreational purposes, um, run the risk of, of being outlaws, right? And so we, we have to grapple with this. So I, you know, without 
saying that I would sign on to somebody's legislation at this at this point because I'm I'm familiar with it, but I'd like to see a little bit more about that particular piece of legislation. Um, I think that I, I can definitely say I'm interested in removing marijuana from Schedule One. I'm interested in um, pursuing uh, its use for medicinal purposes, um, having it as a, an additional crop for our farmers, um, being able to relieve our jails of uh, low, uh, you know, low end offenders for uh, the use of, of small amounts of marijuana and, and the possession of small amounts of marijuana. So it seems to me it's a win-win. It's one of those things where you actually have a lot of bipartisan support. So yeah, let's go. And a last one from me here. Today, the Attorney General released a redacted version of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And the report concluded that there was insufficient evidence to establish that the president or his associates engaged in a criminal conspiracy with Russia. But the special counsel did not clear the president on obstruction of justice, leaving that determination to Congress. Democratic leaders in Congress today called for Robert Mueller to testify in front of Congress. Do you think that Robert Mueller himself should testify before the Congress? Sure. I, I can't imagine why someone wouldn't want him to testify before Congress. The American people are entitled to transparency and they're entitled to have their leaders held accountable. And so there's no reason this has obviously been something that's been quite disruptive in our American civic system. Um, whatever side of the aisle you're on, people are very concerned about this. And there's no reason in the world not to have the man most knowledgeable about the investigation and his findings. Um speak before Congress, which is the official body that should be hearing this on behalf of the people they represent. All right. Well, if people want to learn more about your exploratory committee um, and learn more about you, how could they do that? Yeah, we have a great website set up at TeresaTomlinson.com. There's no H's in any of that. It's T-E-R-E-S-A-T-O-M-L-I-N-S-O-N. So TeresaTomlinson.com, and it has uh, some uh, bio info in there about me, things that you probably wouldn't know, like I hold a national secret security clearance from the Department of Defense and uh, was the former public safety director, as well as the head of Homeland Security and uh, worked with the fifth largest military training base in the world. So there's lots of little nuggets in there you'll find that maybe we can have a, uh, a podcast at a later date you can ask me about. All right. Well, thank you, Mayor Tomlinson, so much for joining the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Kyle. I appreciate it. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.